Hey everyone, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat, a podcast recorded on Gay Omega land by me, Liam Miller, he, him, his, a minister in the Uniting Church in Australia. Today is a special episode, a live episode, if you will. Uh, for a bit over a year now, I've been privileged to be a part of monthly panel conversations uh, on the topic of Black Lives Matter and the church here in these lands now called Australia. Uh, they're, they're hosted by uh, Reverend Tawalofa Angalangi and uh, as part of her work with the Uniting Church Chaplaincy in Port Macquarie um, with the university there and by Reverend Dr. Catalina Tahafe-Williams who uh, does it through her work with the social justice um, um, of the Northern Synod up in the Northern Territory of Australia. So it's, it's those two who host it, myself and often, uh, and usually Emma Jackson, who's a PhD student at Macquarie University, are part of these panels. And, and I'm going to have some information in the show notes because you should definitely check it out. And each month uh, has a rotation of uh, an Indigenous guest. We've had in the past friend of the show, Gary Warete Deverall on, uh, Brooke Prentice, Nathan Tyson, um, have been on and this is the most recent one we did a couple of weeks ago and the guest was Anne Patel Gray, uh, author of The Great White Flood, Racism in Australia. Well, I can't remember if that's the right um, subtitle, but uh, with AAR Press, um, an incredible book and we talk about it in the podcast and there's a broader uh, intro to Anne and her incredible work uh, done there. But Basically, these panels, I, I have learned so much of them. It's so, um, fortunate to be a part of them. The people who engage live, you know, um, have really resonated with the conversations that have been had. Uh, and I was talking with Loffa and Catalina about them, and, and I was thinking, well, hope, you know, hope to try to get more folks engaging with the panels, both, you know, through this podcast form and on, in future ones live um, that I could release them as episodes of Love, Rinse, Repeat as well to try to broaden the audience and, and get more eyes and ears on these really important conversations that are happening. So this is just one of those, right? This is a couple of weeks ago and um, it's, it's a fascinating conversation. So it begins with a little opening. Um, Anne Patel Gray uh, leads us an opening prayer and acknowledgement of country. There's an intro. Then Anne gives a short kind of talk and then the rest of the time is questions of Anne, conversations between the panellists, questions and comments that come in um, from the audience, a really um, an incredible conversation that covers so much uh, and, and is so rich and full. And so, I, I, yeah, I'm very excited to be able to share it uh, and, and I hope you enjoy and we'll probably, I'll probably post some of the previous panels again uh, in, in coming weeks and then... Maybe this will be a bit of an ongoing special episode kind of thing that pops up uh, once or so a month. So uh, enjoy this conversation. Oh, I should actually quickly give just because um, for this reason, th th this one time we didn't introduce all the panellists. So just so you can get to know the others. So uh, Reverend Dr. Catalina Tahafe-Williams is an Oceanian theologian educated in Australia and the United Kingdom with extensive involvement in world church and ecumenical movement. She brings years of experience in social justice to our Black Lives Matter webinar conversations and is a global expert in the field of racial justice and multicultural relations. She's an ordained minister of the Uniting Church in Australia, serving at Nightcliff Uniting Church in the Northern Territory. And Reverend Tawalafa Angalangi is an ordained deacon in the Uniting Church in Australia, currently serving as tertiary chaplain at Charles Sturt University in Port Macquarie. Loffa has a strong interest in studies of the Hebrew Bible and contextual theology. As a young contemporary theologian from Oceania, Oceania uh, her hope is to see more theological work from those at the grassroots of Pacifica. 
who strong believes that the church is accountable in creating space for truth-telling and active listening. She sees this webinar as a response to the as a response and collaboration for bringing faith, justice, and academia together. Uh, information to connect with both Loffer and Catalina's work is in the show notes. Thanks everyone for listening. Let's get to the panel. Okay. Well, welcome everyone. Um, my name. Uh, welcome to uh, another uh, session of Black Lives Matter. Um, I'd like to uh, uh, give. Uh, give this time to Anne to welcome us into country and to lead us in to our opening prayer. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I'd like to start by acknowledging uh, our country and the country that we are gathered on all across Australia. And in particular, mm-hmm. I'm in Kirby, which is the Namangara people. Um, to acknowledge their ancestors and their elders, both past and present, and um, and to give recognition to our future leaders uh, that uh, we have. And uh, I'd like to take this time now to call us to prayer and uh, let's open um, this session with prayer. Let us pray. Bapanandi, creator, God of our ancestors, we seek your guidance as we gather today and ask that we are able to listen to the cries of your people and to guide us and mould us and shape us to your will and let us in our walk uh, be led by you for justice. All these things we ask in your name. Amen. Amen. It is also a great honour for me to um, to introduce Dr. Anne Patel Gray. She's the head of Australia First Nations Program um, of World Vision Australia. She was appointed to the role in March 2020. Uh, Dr. Patel Gray has an earned PhD from the University of Sydney awarded in 1995 in the studies of religion with the major focus on Aboriginal religion and spirituality, and a Doctor of Divinity from India awarded in 1997. Dr. Patel Gray has also received many firsts in her prestigious life, and she's known as a trailblazer, and she has opened many doors for her people. Uh, She is a recognised scholar, theologian, activist, and prolific writer with several publications. She has over 30 years in senior management as a CEO in the NGO sectors. And Dr. Uh, Patel Gray is a descendant of the Bidyara, Kari Kari people. Bidyara. Thank you. Uh, Karikari people in Queensland and a recognised Aboriginal leader within Australia. Um, Nationally and internationally, she has dedicated her life to the struggle of Australia's First Nation people as a strong campaigner, lobbyist towards seeking justice, equity and equal representation for AFN. Dr. Ant 
Patel Gray is deeply committed to the advancement of AFN and to reconciliation between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal Australians. Okay. Yeah. So we'll let Anne um, take us through. Yeah, great. Anne, please uh, go ahead. Well, um, look, in regards to Black Lives Matter, you know, when we look at the campaign that began or rose out of the US, out of Floyd, uh, Lloyd's, um, you know, death, uh, subsequent death, and um, I think we had a major victory in regards to his uh, court case, particularly the family, you know, that uh, the person was prosecuted and, and found guilty and, um, and, and, and I'm sure that, um, you know, gives them many blessings but doesn't give them back um, Lloyd in, in, in any capacity. And as we continue to follow what's happening around the globe, we continue to see the racist violence that is emerging around the world um, and those that are there to protect us are quite often the ones perpetrating such violence. And, um, and we're certainly seeing it in Australia. For um, First Nations people in Australia, we've been, you know, speaking about this level of violence since the 70s, deaths in custody being one of those. Also, you know, people being shot in their own bed um, where police barging through doors, you know, absolutely traumatising entire families and communities. These things um, haven't disappeared and they continue to. When we look at the violence of, um, you know, police against women and um, that happens uh, around communities for First Nations uh, women, it is quite alarming. And, uh, you know, the lack of seriousness even around, you know, domestic violence and family violence, um, you know, to be a First Nation person, to raise these questions, quite often you're treated as the perpetrator, if not the, you know, the person who has done wrong rather than being someone who needs to be protected, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, quite often you're just sent away. So, you know, the alarming issue that is growing in Australia or well, has been with us for a long time, mm -hmm. long, long time, it's, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter has just given us another opportunity to raise the voice and to raise awareness that these things are happening within our communities mm. and, um, you know, how we're going to respond is, is up to us. Mm. And I think, you know, some of the positions that have been taken by women in this country about their treatment and saying enough's enough yeah. is a good campaign and a good way to address even government and, and hold them to accountability of a higher standard uh, rather than something that we excuse as being, oh, just men, you know. Being um, just men is, is not acceptable anymore. And um, if, you, if you're going to rise up into positions of leadership, then you need to be held accountable. Your standard needs to be higher than those who aren't in leadership positions uh, or in positions of authority or protection. You need to be the example. You need to be able to, um, you know, lead community in a way of a behaviour that is acceptable, that uh, is uh, tolerant, but also that extends grace. 
and um, and unfortunately we have none of the above that is visible at this point in time. And I think it is something that the churches need to take up. You know, we need to stand up and say what is acceptable in our community and what's happening is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. And sadly, our voices have been so silent. Um, you know, the silence has been deafening yeah. from our churches and um, yeah. and it's disheartening to think that uh, we're silent, you know, in this space. And uh, maybe some churches may feel the lack of credibility to be able to stand in this space because of child abuse and, and mm-hmm. pedophilia and, and so on and so on. One would hope that we've addressed that topic and that we've been able to do justice in the manner that it should have been done and that we now can move forward. Um, and, uh, you know, I think it's really important that we're always reflecting and looking at ourselves as to what change needs to happen internally, but more importantly, what needs to happen externally. And uh, what we need now is leadership. We need voices. We need courage. We need men to stand uh, with conviction, to be bold, to be challenging other men. Um, we need to be uh, challenging our police force and to say no longer, enough's enough and uh, things need to change and racism needs to be uh, aggressively attacked and uh, we need to no longer tolerate it. Thank you. You're on mute, Catalina. I'm supposed to be um, following up um, Anne and ask you a question. (laughs) So my question is, because what you've said is just going, you know, um, very well right into what we thought would be a really um, good conversation for our webinar today. And that is... um, you know, uh, about the church's response to this issue. And because of the Uniting Church's 44th anniversary this June, this month, which we just celebrated last week, we, you know, we wondered um, how how do you, because you have been very actively part of the Uniting Church for years and, you know, have been the staff at the assembly and all of that. And how, you know, what's your you know, what's your perspective on what has happened over these years with the Uniting Church and its commitment to covenant and reconciliation, um, you know, given what you've just said now, you know, in the light of Black Lives Matter um, and the lives of Black Australians, yeah. Look, sadly, Catalina, you know, things have changed uh, dramatically within our Uniting Church and... um, those courageous leaders that we once have, a lot of them have passed on and they are dearly lost. Uh, their wisdom is, is, is greatly missed in our, um, in our midst. Um, yeah. I don't know what's happened to the Uniting Church. We've become <laughs> toothless tigers. We, we kind of run and hunt. And we're, we're hiding under a rock somewhere. I have to find which rock we're hiding under. Because I can't find you anywhere. I can't hear your voice. I can't see you anywhere. And that worries me as a church. You know, the one thing I always was proud of is that my church had the gumption. They had the backbone to stand up and to be heard and to speak truth into uh, our conversations 
which are so desperately needed in Australia. We, we, we do everything to hide truth. And, uh, and that was the one thing we could do best, was speak truth into some of these um, injustices that mm. are taking place in our country. And I would dearly love to see that happen again. I don't know how we do that, but uh, we really need to gather again those who are deeply committed to justice, those who want to see a difference take place for First Nations people. Um, we need to find a forum and a gather, and uh, we need to raise our voice again within this ultra-conservative uh, forum mm -hmm. that the Uniting Church has become. We've lost our directions, we've lost our commitment, and we've lost our sense of duty. And uh, all of a sudden we're racing around trying to find money and and survival will come when you stand for something. You'll die if you stand for nothing. And that's what's happening. Uniting church, you're not standing for anything. You need to stand up for something because people want leaders. They want to see justice. They want to see commitment. And, and if you stand up, you will find your churches full again, you know, and um, you need to be more, I need to even be looking at how racist we've become. And, um, you know, we, we've become a very exclusive little club again. And, <laughs> uh, you know, that was transformed and, chal and challenged over the 70s and 80s and early 90s. But uh, when we went through that whole evolution of homosexuality we we put up our walls and all gathered together and huddled and then we shut the world out and um, sadly you know we became a very spiteful people about um, you know people who may be different from us and very exclusionary and United Church was never known for that we always were open doors we loved anyone who came through our door, we never judged, we never looked at people's sin because that's not our role. Our role, we are called to love one another and we did that exceptionally well and the one thing we didn't tolerate was injustice. Mm -hmm. And uh, sadly, we're no longer taking that stance. But that does not go back there again. And hopefully some of the leadership that comes through, maybe the young emerging clergy maybe could have that courage. And I think, you know, a lot of it also, um, Catalina comes back to our theological seminaries because we have no First Nation voice in there. We have no um, faculty on staff. We have no about spirituality uh, about our theology, about our missiology, and uh, and I think you know that's shameful uh, for Australia to uh, not even know how to engage with its First Nation people, but uh, not to even have an understanding. So when we talk about theology and we talk about church, how is it rooted in this soil if we're absent from your education? Mm. Thank you so much for that. 
there's incredible response. There was so much there. I, I wanted to ask you about what one element you're talking about. You, you kind of mentioned that maybe some of the timidity in the church taking a very public forthright stance in this comes from the lack, the loss of credibility and the loss of respect following um, child sex abuse scandals. And I think also probably linked to that is more and more awareness of the church's complicity in in colonization and in racism in, in, in these lands, um, and the sanctification of that. And so I think, yeah, the Uniting Church in a lot of ways has taken taken those so much to heart that now it's 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 this more model of we can't lead anymore. What we have to do is kind of like almost like this show up in support or build broader coalitions and work in that way. And I think like I really attracted what you're saying that we want to come you know forward that what we need is is you know strong leadership and standing for things and sticking our neck out. And I guess but we don't want to go back in the way that it was in the past, where it was a kind of a paternalistic, oh, yeah. um, we know best. So I'm thinking about that move that goes, you know, we are we are learning to reflect critically on where the deep failures, but not get stuck there, um, but push outward. Um, and I think I'm, I'm just curious about your thoughts on on that second step and how we do that and, and remain, and it's not just one step, you know, it's remaining self-reflective. It's been remaining open to being critique. Like actually you, you stepped out, that was bold. You got this part wrong, go back and learn and come again. You know, like how, how that work um, occurs. Um, I think it's probably in likelihood tied to, as you say about theological education and, and how that's been done or not done. But yeah, I'm just curious about that, that word for those, especially for you know, younger clergy who are you know wanting to make those stands, but also aware of, the situation that we're coming from and that loss of um, mm. the besmirchment on our witness. Mm. I agree with you. Look, you know, the one thing I love about World Vision Australia is it puts the First Nation people in the driver's seat. It knows it doesn't have the expertise. It knows it doesn't, you know, have the answers. But what it does do is recognise First Nation people as the leaders, as the people who do have the answers. And that's what they create, is that platform. And, and by doing that, they partner with First Nations people, making sure they're in the seat and they then support their vision, their views, their solutions, whatever they may come. And that's how we've always used to do it. But, you know, World Vision used to do that with Reverend Charles Harris. You know, Reverend Charles led the way. He led the church and the church backed his vision. We, we lost, we've lost our way. We, we don't have even credible uh, in our church and, and that's bad. And uh, we need to bring back, you know, with our church leaders you know, drawing from different, uh, even ecumenical forums, uh, but leaders coming from community to be able to sponsor and support leaders coming together to have a voice. And by doing that, they then can take the voice of those leaders to amplify them. That's what they need to do. Uh, so it, it's not about them speaking on our behalf. It's about them creating the opportunity mm. that allows us to speak for ourselves. 
Now, that's the greatest thing they could offer is a voice and recognition of it. And the church can do that very well. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is this your little uh, Liliani? Yes. <laughs> True. <laughs> How old man? <laughs> She's doing a PhD now, Anne. Oh, too deadly, too deadly. Oh, too deadly. You're a woman now. Fantastic. Um, um, did anyone, did you, Olofa, did you have a question? Uh, not at this point of time, but we do have a question from the audience. Okay. Can I throw that in? Yes, please. Uh, do you think that risk um, and insurance management are dictating the framework which churches need to manage in confronting justice in today's climate with covenant and reconciliation? There was a question from Stephen Winter. Mm. Oh, well, you know, one has to ask what risk, what, the loss of their economics that they took from us in the first place? (laughs) You know, when we have to talk about restitution, giving back what was stolen, when we talk about white privilege, you know, identifying the wealth and the privilege that came from our colonisation, I don't think there's a lot of risk. If anything, what we need to be doing is dismantling those systems that have been been built on a colonial world and colonial uh, ideology. Uh, They need to be dismantled. We need to learn to do things differently. That includes the knowledge, the wealth of all peoples, not just this framework that we've inherited through colonisation. The uh, whole system needs to be decolonised. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's a scary, scary process uh, because it means people who have had great wealth lose and share wealth and who have great power have to lose power in order to share power. And um, so there's a whole paradigm shift that takes place. And, um, and that's great risk. And uh, we need to be looking at what that means for us. If we're truly going to have a country that is just, then to me, the only way it's, it's doable is become a republic. Then we can start from scratch and build a country that has, uh, you know, a new beginning but not attached to that colonial history, that colonial beginnings, mm. you know, because yeah. for a lot of us people, young, younger people, you and we've been, we're inheritors of that history and it's still embed, is embedded in how we do things today. And I would say a lot of us are still deaf of it and we want to see a lot of changes happening because we do not want to continue to inherit a country with the history that we have. We want change. We want difference. So perhaps, you know, uh, as I say, a lot of the young people, we've got to hear your voice, you know, because we need to do things differently and we need to put colonisation to bed once and for all. Mm. And how are we going to do that? As I say, hey, we can't do what we're doing in this uh, structure. We've got to have a republic. We've got to start from the beginning and, um, you know, and get it right. 
yeah. where everyone uh, is inheritors of this country and um, where the First Nations aren't excluded from being inheritors um, and being a part of the new world, if we want to call it a new world mm. or a new Australia. Mm. But, uh, yeah, lots of changes got to happen. Um, can I can I ask uh, can I follow up from that end um, to just yeah. um, you know unpack what you've just said because um, you know as I look at Australia now we have a very conservative government you know um, in Canberra and as far as I'm concerned quite racist in um, their policies and the things that individual um, you know political leaders say. Even responses to this Black Lives Matter issue is, has been quite racist. Um, of course, they won't see it as that. That's what it is, you know. Um, and so I'm just, you know, I'm just, I'm not, what, what I'm thinking is there is no guarantee that, big, you know, having a republic means we are starting all over again because it could just be, a, um, you, know, uh, you know, a window dressing for the same thing happening all over again. Uh, but I guess what you're saying is that it needs to be a, a, a process to ensure that if we are to start all over again, that we start with models of leadership in the way that you've just outlined, where Indigenous First Nations people are at the front line of yeah. leadership and not the replicating of the old systems, you know. Uh, because when I'm looking at Australia now, I just, I just have, I feel like... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I just just don't have any faith that you know that things will change, in in the way that you know that we agree in this um, webinar. It needs to, as, especially in the way that you articulated, and you know that's yeah. and when you and then when I when you talk about young people, um, you know I. I don't even like I, one of the great things that came out of uh, Black Lives Matter marches in 2020, where that you know many young people were becoming more radicalized, you know, mm -hmm. and more aware of the history, you know. Yeah. Um, but when I, I'm not sure that I can say that about the Uniting Church. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's. I think I'm not sure that we can say that um, right across the Uniting Church. All our young people uh, are fully informed about the history. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure uh, whether it's young people or maybe just you know a general thing. Because I just, I just, I'm sure. Like I, um, yeah. I know that two young uh, white people on this webinar, Emma and Liam. And I'm sorry if I'm offending you by calling you young, but um, you know, but you know, but I, I know that they. Um, you know, the, the things that they say and the way that they live their lives, uh, um, you know, are telling me that they are aware of the history mm -hmm. of this country and are doing their level best, you know, to to try and help contribute to a turning around of things. But, you know, and, and because we are talking about the Uniting Church at this webinar, I am just, I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah. You know, what is that the, the reality for the Uniting Church? Do we have uniformly across the church young people who are actually uh, fully aware of the history uh, of this country and uh, are they young people that, uh, you know, would be the kind of leadership that we talked about, um, you know, in the past, you know, of those amazing people who were leading 
unafraid and you know bold in this in this area of justice for Aboriginal people. You know, look, you know, um, Catalina, the, the the sad reality is, you know, our successive governments have never done justice to uh, this topic of First Nations, regardless of who they are, and um, and our church. Uh, began their journey in the 70s and, and, you know, we were really on fire in the 80s and early 90s. Mm. And I think that's because of the leadership we had yes, at that yes, particular yes. time. And then after that, everything kind of died. We became, you know, self-serving, looking after me, myself and I. Unfortunately, we also had programs where our leadership was able to talk to the next generation in uh, the Uniting Church, those young emerging uh, leaders, and we were able to educate them. That was uh, one of them. Yes. And, and the thing is, what, what is uh, the reality is, is our education system will does not do any justice in uh, equipping our young people to, one, know the history, the truth about that history, but also to... Um, educate them in a manner to learn about who we are as a people and, uh, and to continually look at the racism that continues to emerge and oppress, if not deny us human rights and all manner of things. And I think, you know, uh, in the Uniting Church, you know, has a real obligations to our emerging leaders that uh, within the Uniting Church to ensure their education. And that's what I say. Here we are theologically in our seminaries training the next lot of ministers and yet we have not one iota of Aboriginalology. We do not even have an Aboriginal person on faculty. We do not educate about, you know, our spirituality, the history, nothing. So we are failing. Now, I have been challenging our Uniting Church since, oh, gosh, the 90s. <laughs> why are you, why have we not got an Aboriginal person on faculty? Now, that Aboriginal person can teach at all of our, our seminaries, right? They don't have to be tied to one. Um, how many times you're going to teach the same thing over and over again um, to, you know, the same graduates who are going through, you know, a four-year degree um, because you can share that around and uh, it ain't going to cost you an arm and a leg to employ anybody to come in. But you also need to have the resources. Now, every one of our seminaries lack resources from third world theologians, from tribal theologians, from all of that work that's been done around the globe, we have little. We're still talking to the north, for God's sakes, and we're determining our theology from the north. Hey, what about this country? You know, you want to call Australia home? Well, it's about time we created a theology that emerged from this country. And we begin to look at our history and hold ourselves accountable to that history, that wrongdoing or whatever took place. But let's emerge a theology that is genuine, 
that is born out of this soil, you know. And I just I just marvel at the fact when I read, you know, anything that is published in Australia because we're still talking to Europe. We're still talking to Germany. We're still talking to everybody else, or so even the United States, but we're not talking to anybody here. And it's like, you know, it's that, um, how would you put it, that uh, uh, armchair scholarship actually travels anywhere. We just read literature and we get to know nobody. And, uh, you know, if you've got uh, theolo Aboriginal theologians and, and, and academics into your, into your seminaries, could we begin to have these dialogues that emerge? Could we begin to influence, you know, uh, what the theology comes out and what the Uniting Church stands for? Um, you know, there's just so many opportunities that arise that uh, Uniting Church has, I don't know, for whatever reason, chosen not to uh, embrace uh, because there's there's no excuse for the ignorant, put it that way. There is none whatsoever, and there is no excuse for putting out redneck clergy out in that country who don't know how to relate to our people. Mm. It is unforgivable. Mm. Yeah. Thank you. Oh. Um, can I just say one quick thing? We would be celebrating, um, you, I'd be happy to know, Anne, that um, Gary Deverell, who is has been a, pa a panelist on this webinar, um, is now head of uh, an Aboriginal theology department at the College of Divinity in in uh, Melbourne. From my uh, so yeah, you know, so I think it's a first. But if we can have a similar thing in the Uniting Church Theological Colleges, anyway, Cole yeah. Liam, sorry, yeah. Oh, the the thing I was just going to say is I think like um, Catalina and, and Loffer and I both you know all, all ordained in the Uniting Church have made in our ordination vows. There's like you know, will you? Like honor the covenant between the United Church and the UAICC, and will you, uh, you know, serve both first and second people? Something like to those effect. And you know, it's like we all say yes, but like I think the the question, as you've pointed, out, is well, how? <laughs> Where were we equipped in our in our formation training in our theological education exactly. to do that well? Like you know, where have we? When was the time spent studying the actual? The covenant yeah, statement, you know, and where was the time you know learning this? You know, so you know, because otherwise, yeah, you're saying yes, but like, truly, are we ready to do do it in a way that's you know not harmful, not perpetuating, and not just like guessing? Um, yeah. I think that's yeah. So you're right. Like, it's like, how are we doing it without? Yeah, yeah. such a good point. And you know, I've heard about the appointment of that young man, but once again, young man, let's get a little bit of life experience behind. You know, some history of leadership that has come through the Uniting Church uh, that has a full history and knowledge of how the Uniting Church formation has evolved in its relationship with Australia First Nations, what's happened, you know, all of that sort of stuff. That's some of the history that needs to come into that as well. Yeah, in the yeah, if we appoint anything like this, I agree, in the Uniting Church, I agree with you, you know, we need to look carefully and make sure that uh, the people are bringing that history and, you know, um, and teaching them to exactly. the candidates. Yeah. Uh, a, a comment slash question came in uh, through the Zoom. I'll, I'll read that. Uh, from Helen Hill. Um, was asking kind of, will the Uniting Church be making submission to the ACARA, uh, the Australian Curriculum Review 
body, which is devising a framework for school curricula nationally. Uh, First Nation peoples are a, a cross-cutting issue. Uh, so is Australia's. So is Australia's engagement with Asia, but it looks as if Australia's engagement with the Pacific will be left out, meaning that students will continue to be ignorant about topics such as the slave trade with Malaysia and Australia's colonization of the PNG. Of PNG. The work of Pacific Island novelists and writers. Um, there will also be a need for people such as Dr. Anne Patel-Gray and other First Nations educators to be able to make input into some of the text and classroom activities. Uh, and I believe it is not too late to make such a submission, says Helen. Um, so I was thinking, Anne, like you know, what thoughts you might have there, particularly, you know, I know with the Great White Flood, which which documents very much the, the, the you know, government and the way that, you know, socialising through education plays such a role in the racism in this country. Well, you know, the Great White Flood was um, it was um, banned from being um, available, made available in Australia by a Howard government. He wouldn't allow it to be sold in the stores, wow. and the only way you could get it was online. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's and it's still the case. Uh, you can only buy it online. It, it is not available in any store in Australia. So that was a fascinating mm. thing, uh, that took place. And um, it, it's quite interesting that a lot of uh, white folk, um, I haven't had anybody review it, um, you know. Maybe it cuts too close to the nerve, I don't know. But uh, it's quite fascinating that it has sold extremely well around the world and it's in every seminary, by the way, around the world. Uh, but not an ours, and um, which is quite fascinating. Um, look, I agree that, you know, what's happening at the moment in regards to our national curriculum, that First Nations need to be a part of that. Uh, but I also agree that, and what's taking place, we support wholeheartedly, by the way. Um, but I uh, think that uh, Aboriginal people should write the story uh, uh, from a First Nation perspective about that history, uh, the same as I, I believe that um, Kanaki should write their own uh, what took place, also Chinese uh, what took place, and uh, the Afghans, because all were brought under slavery into this country. Nobody wants to talk about it, mm-hmm. and, um, and I think it would be wonderful to have that voice heard uh, within our curriculum. Mm-hmm. And um, we have incredible historians, uh, both white and black, and in particular Henry Reynolds, and you've got also Marcia Langton um, and others like us who have written about history and documented what has taken place. And, I mean, you know, one of the fascinating things that I love about Henry Reynolds and the reason I always talk about, you know, it's great to have black and white do things together um, because then it makes it more difficult for white people to dismiss, you know, if you've got a white fella um, uh, in the midst of writing. And the one thing that Henry Reynolds did, and he did well, was that what he stated that, you know, the number of Aboriginal people that died in Queensland alone was more than the First and Second World War. And yet they don't want to talk about a war that took place here in this country. And, you know, and we want to honour the Anzacs. We want to have all of these memorials. We want to do all of these things. What about all of those black people who fought for their country? 
and die for their country in this this country. You know, these are the sort of things that need to be told and recognised. Mm. And you know, how Aboriginal people, um, through policy, government policy, were disinherited from wealth, from you know, um, land and and resources and. Uh, you know, even though there's a story, you know, that I talk about where an Aboriginal woman, she married an Irish man, they mined a gold field, and when he died, the government took all the wealth from her and left her in absolute poverty. You know, these are the kind of things people need to understand. Aboriginal people are broken people today government did to them and uh, you know they weren't drunks uh, they weren't violent they've been pushed to that mm -hmm. they've been trod upon for so long and um, you know what we see now is the brokenness and yes, yes. Uh, we see the symptom of uh, but we never talk about the cause you know, government says, oh, let's build more this, let's build more alcohol, let's do mental health, let's do that. No, no, no. Go back to the cause. Give back the land. Give back the wealth. That's where the cause is. That's what's broken our people. Our people here in Derby, they can't even go on the country and do ceremonies because the cattle stations have rights over their country, you know. So land is dying, songs are dying, ceremonies, and these things are alarming. And I always say, you know, Australia, you should be celebrating the fact that you're the only country in the world that can say we've got the oldest living culture yeah. in the world. Yeah. Yet you're not. You're going to wait till it dies and then it's too late. So that's enough to make the churches. The churches should be jumping up and down and saying, we've got to fight, we've got to do whatever we can to save this culture, to save these people because yeah. once they're gone, they're gone. And they've lived on this land for 120,000 years. Archaeologists have determined through middens 120,000 years. Now, surely, wouldn't you want to be able to draw wisdom and knowledge about how to care from this environment, considering it's been 230 and look at the destruction you guys have done? Wouldn't you want to then sit down and listen and perhaps give them the money to do the, re uh, the restoration and look after country and get everything back the way it is? Because, you know, this land is being destroyed through mining, through greed, and, uh, you know, as long as the government's got money, nobody seems to care. Hey, but our children are going to inherit this. And our children, yours and mine, they're saying, oh, no, 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 we're sick of what you people are doing, what the old generations are doing. We're going to start holding you accountable now because you're leaving us with so much destruction that there will not be a way of fixing it. Mm. So that's where we're up to. But, yeah. Mm. Thank you. Um, just a comment on the Facebook uh, from uh, Pearl Wama. Wamara, uh, just, just say. Wamara. Wamara. Oh, hello, Pearl. Hey, Pearl. 
Um, good, to, uh, good to hear from you, Pearl. And just to say, she absolutely agrees, Anne. We need more education on how the past has shaped the present for all in the Uniting Church. So just yeah, to well, there's, a, there's one of our leaders. There's one mm. of our leaders that was in the Uniting Church that uh, raised a voice that we've shunned, that we've silenced, you know. This is what we're doing, you know, unless we're trotting the tune of the Uniting Church, you get shunned, you get silenced. And, uh, you know, we lost a, a voice there and uh, we need to be bringing people back. And uh, in the Uniting Church, and if I can be so bold and, and so frank, and I will be, and I know I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get shot for this, in the Uniting uh, Congress, you got outsiders they don't even come from the Uniting Church. They all come from Pentecostal conservative background. And therefore, their doctrine is not even Uniting Church. They exclude women, they silence women, and they do not talk to women leadership. So you've got a real problem when you're bringing a lot of outsiders from outside because they are not coming from Uniting Church doctrine. So you've got a major problem. Mm. I mean, um, that's an interesting um, issue, Anne, because, you know, as I'm reflecting on the evolution of the Uniting Church in terms of its multicultural journey, uh, um, and as you're speaking, I'm, you know, thinking about what you said uh, along the same line that I was thinking about that evolution. So, So I'm thinking... In the multicultural uh, journey, there's, you know, there's, um, there has been some issues, you know, about internal politics that we are still wrestling with, you know, oh, to yeah. this day, you know. Yeah. Um, and we really all, all, in many ways, uh, those of us who, um, you know, have, have, have worked on in this kind of area of, racial justice and, you know, inclusion and multiculturalism and, um, you know, identity politics and all of that. We can understand some of the depth of the issues in terms of relationship between the dominant culture and the minorities that, are make, that make up the multicultural world, you know, or society or community. But when it comes to um, the, our Indigenous First Peoples relationship with the dominant culture, you know, that, that is, that, that it has been happening separate from the multicultural journey. And I think it, it's been important that it happens that way. And to this day, we still haven't reconciled, like our journeys have not merged yet. Because, because I believe that we, you know, the, the underlying tension you know, with diversity and, 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 and second peoples and, you know, recent migrants who are added, you know, more salt to the wound that hasn't healed yet of Aboriginal people and the history of colonization and their dispossession um, and displacement. That's still, you know, work that is ongoing that, you know, those of us who are in the multicultural movement, so to speak, you know, have still got to transition into that engagement and find our place there in a respectful way, you know, to be in solidarity and to support and to prioritize, in my view, what should be an issue for this whole nation and our healing and reconciliation, and that is Aboriginal rights and, you know, um, autonomy and, you know, uh, sovereignty and all of that, 
we need to put all our, you know, our focus on that, even if it means putting aside our multicultural stuff, you know. But, I agree with yeah. you, Catalina, you know, because yeah. one of the things that, um, you know, got within um, Uniting Church is that um, we've done well in separating us and keeping you guys over on another side, multicultural communities separate from us, you know, and um, in order that we don't talk to one another. No, and and as far as I'm concerned, you know, you guys coming in and and as new migrants and being here or whatever, you come from your own country where your you've got treaties. Uh, some people have treaties. Some of them have justice. Um, you are in a more of a stronger position to understand our culture and our oppression because you've experienced the same and when you come into our country you're getting treated differently if not sometimes better than better. we are yes exactly and we should be calling it out mm-hmm. should be calling it out because we are so dependent we would not allow them to treat you that way if we know as first nation people that any one of our migrant community is being treated appallingly, I'm telling you now, we're, we're in the white fella's face. And we said, that's not all. You will not do that. And um, we have fought for you to have a place within our congregation, within our church, uh, because you have a right to be there. You have a right to be having your own churches in your own languages. And we've said that from day one. They have a right and they should not have to be talking English. You know, English is not the first language in this country and it will never be. So we make that very loud and clear to the, you, uh, to the white church and we have fought very, very hard uh, in the uniting church for your rights. It would be wonderful if it's reciprocated to us. If you guys who are now in leadership, who have influence, we would be overwhelmed if sometimes you stood up for us uh, and spoke for us instead of being silent and letting us, us talk all the time because we would welcome your voice because sometimes I think it needs to be heard. One of the things that I uh, learned about the Uniting Church, and I had to ask the question, where they use that term second people, mm-hmm. And I raised it and said, where did that come from? And got told, you know, oh, you know, we talk about first peoples, but, you know, what are we going to call ourselves? I said, colonist. You've never stopped being a colonist. How do you get the right to call yourself a second person when you've done no justice? How dare you? And I said, you're a colonist. You're an invader. It will never change until you do justice. So I was, I growled my people, I growled them big time. I said, how dare you allow them to call themselves second people when they're colonists? I said, they've not changed anything for you. I said, you got nothing. Where's your restitution? Where's your land? Where's your uh, money? Where's your wealth? Where's the return? Nothing's changed. So I get offended when I hear that term, second people. 
I could understand it if it would apply to multicultural community because you weren't a part of the colonisation. I could understand it there, okay. you know. I said, but then white people, they're invaders, they're colonists. Mm. Okay. But when I okay. look at, you know, multicultural, then I might call you second people. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you, you haven't earned the right, white Australia, I'm sorry, you have not earned the right to use that term for yourself because you have done no justice you have not transformed your church at all. Well, um, so what about this, Anne? Um, you know, because I wrote this article when we were having that debate about the preamble to the Constitution of the Uniting Church. And I was writing it from a multicultural perspective. And, of course, you know, I had, you know, to confess, I have bought into the whole thing that, you know, all of us should be second people in relation to the first people of the land. But now you've educated me, so, you know, I confess. I, but um, but part of my issue there is that in my experience, those of us who are later migrants, like, you know, whether you're from the Pacific or, you know, whatever part of the world and are not part of the colonising culture or dominant culture, yeah. colonists, as you put it, um, some of us have just internalised, you know, the narrative of the, you know, colonists. Of and many colonies. of us have just become even more racist than the settler, you know, the, you know, colon, the descendants of the colonists um, in this day and age, you know, and, and, and refuse to recognize that history, um, you know, because we are too busy making our way in this country that we are now seeing as the land of milk and honey, you know? So some of us who are, you know, recent migrants, um, you know, have just bought wholesale into that whole narrative. And so yeah. I was, you know, and my my issue was because we're doing that, because too many of us are in that space and continue to be that way, we have to recognise that we are, you know, um, we are not, you know, we are, you know, in some ways we, we are continuing the colonising enterprise. You know? And I think the sad thing, Catalina, is that that's how strong the narrative is. Mm. That's how strong it is in Australia. And, and you know, and if you aren't with them, how are you going to benefit? So by coming alongside them and acting with them on that narrative, you are earning and inheriting wealth from them. And that's why a lot of our people won't challenge it because they're earning something. They're getting something from not saying a word and, uh, and you know, the narrative won't change unless everyone starts speaking against that narrative, unless the multicultural community starts to challenge that narrative. It'll never change because, you know, um, while you're supporting it, you're getting, you know, I don't know, you're getting paid silence money, are you getting paid, yeah. you know, uh, colonising, you know, are you getting shut down um, to not be a part of that challenging, that narrative. But I would yeah. welcome, I, I, I seriously, 
in, in the times that Charles and I have worked at the national level of the Assembly, we have challenged and fought for your rights to have your voice, to have your language and to have your space. Mm. And we have fought hard for that. Mm. And John Brown can tell you a little bit about that because he was a part of the fight. And uh, because they all wanted you to talk English. And we said, nope, they will have their own language. They have their rights. They will have their ceremonies. Mm. They will wear their clothes. They will do whatever they need to do culturally because they need to retain culture because it's God-given. And we fought very hard for that. And those are some of the stories that are lost uh, throughout the, you know, what, what has it been, 20, 30 years since then. And, um, you know, people like yourselves have, have not heard that story. But by gosh, it would be wonderful to have the new voices now speak into the space saying we no longer want to be a part of this narrative because it's dishonest. We want to speak truth into the narrative, which is about the colonisation of this country. Mm. One of the things that we pray for, remember the 99, uh, 91 Assembly, spirit of truth set us free. Well, gee, we've still got a long way to set Australia free. Mm. And that's where I call on other Christians within the Uniting Church set us free from the colonial lies. Thank, thank you so much. Uh, and it's, it's been like, what a lesson and, and what a wonderful conversation. We have now a little time. We'll do final thoughts. Um, I'll do the first one, then I'll shoot to Lofa, Catalina, and then you can offer the final, final thought. Um, <laughs> though, though you've offered us so much great food for thought and I really appreciate it and, and, and the, the passion that you've led us today is just wonderful so my final thought is very easy it's go and get the great white flood um because not only is it a landmark vital work of theology but i've just learned that if you buy it you defy john howard and we all need more ways to do that uh and it's never a bad thing to do so the great white flood racism in australia buy it for yourself if you have the means um call contact the theological library whether it's uniting church or whatever denomination you're a part of and watching this make sure they have it tell them to get it get three friends and pitch in together and then have some sort of you know some you get it a few months of the year each whatever you do pick up the book that's that's my final thought it's um is to keep learning and keep exploring how we how we hear the truth how we repent from the truth, and then how we walk boldly to action going forward. And I think this book is a, a way to think about that. So that's my one. Lofa, <laughs> final thoughts. Thanks, Liam. Um, thank you so much, Anne, for, um, for today. Um, I'm really grateful to hear what you've had to offer um, us uh, second people, if I may, um, offering us uh, ways to think about embracing um, our faith as well as uh, how that faith values um, the strength in um, building relationships with um, Australia's First Nations people. Um, and secondly, I just want to say how grateful I am and um, that I wouldn't be here today. It, it wasn't for people like you who fought for 
us younger um, people of eth- um, ethnic communities to be part of the Uniting Church and to be able to be um, leading in different parts of the church and to speak my mother tongue rather than just English. So thank you so much for that. Oh, my gosh. You know, this is this is so hard because I've got so many things that I want to say. Um, I, when, when it comes to multicultural activists speaking to this space about, you know, prioritising Indigenous human rights and their right to their land and justice, I've been doing that, you know, since I became um, prominent or visible in the Uniting Church. You know, I've been doing that in theological college. I've been doing that in my writings. But, you know, my concern is that we don't have enough of the minority ethnic communities that are equipped in the same way to speak into that space, you know. So so we have still a, a lot of work to do in that area to educate and to build confidence and equip um you know, Pacific Islanders and minority ethnic communities, you know, to step up and to take the responsibility to speak into the space together, you know, with uh, with our Aboriginal brothers and sisters in the way that Anne is talking about. And that's the other the other thing, of course, is that um, I'm always worrying about the negotiation that we have to make in a culture, in a dominant cultural space, you know, so that when we're, um, celebrating that we can speak our languages as Pacific Islanders, for example, in the churches in the United Church, which you're right about, Anne, you know, you have fought for it, and the United Church has done pretty well in, you know, encouraging that multicultural space where people can speak their own languages and do worship and liturgy in the way that they are comfortable with and in the language of their hearts. My view is that it was meant to be a stepping stone to us becoming more interculturally cross-culturally connected and in a space where we can all together prioritize our first peoples, you know, the first nation people to make sure that that is, is so, is like addressed so that the whole country can be healed, you know, but we are not in that. We haven't done that. We are not there yet because, and I feel worried that we are all in our little silos and continue to be separate, you know, to be on separate paths and you know, and it'll take us longer to come together in reconciliation with our Aboriginal brothers and sisters and to be supporting you, you know, and First Nations people in that, you know, in that cause, getting the root causes addressed and getting the country healed as a whole. That's my final thought. Sorry. Thank you, Catalina. And just before I just wanted to update, um, Pearl shared uh on the in the in the Facebook comments that she uh, is back doing a Bachelor of Theology at CSU at Centre for Ministry and loving being back in an academic environment. Uh, so she just shared that and, and a bunch of other people have just shared their their gratitude for what you've said. So I'll, I'll just mention that and then hand it over to you for a final thought. For me, you know, um, the greatest thing is to see you guys speak in your own language because that's been taken from me. Mm by the church and I fight for people to have their own language because that's your identity, that's your culture. And to me, I am proud to see all our churches with their own language because 
For, for me, I see our churches around Australia and some of us have our language still, but I see a lot of us who have been taken, our language is being taken. And it breaks mm. my heart to be able to not sing my songs to my country because of what they did to us. And if it was a time where we can educate you, where we can find space to talk together, mm. to look at how we can strategize together to bring about the change that we need to have, mm. then I would welcome that with open arms. Mm. And, uh, and I can tell you I can bring a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to that conversation mm. because there is a groundswell of us who are out there and we just would like, we just want the opportunity. And if you give us that opportunity, then we'll come. We'll come to be with you to strategize, just to strategize about how we can fight for our justice because we welcome you. We want you here with us. And there's just so many things that we can learn from one another. I rejoice at the fact that we have so many diverse cultures in this land. But by God, I want to see it uh, embraced. I want to see it across the country. I'm sick of seeing English everywhere. I want to see us to be able to express other languages and to draw on other forms of epistemology, you know, and ideology, to be able to express what is unique to Australia and that's our multiculturalism. And, um, you know, and at the heart of that is the First Nations people. And we just want our rightful place. That's all we ask for. We don't ask for more. We just want our rightful place. And we want to have, we want to be valued. And we want our children to have a future because at the moment they don't. And uh, so, you know, we need you to be able to amplify our voice and to take our voices into those places where we're not welcome nor heard. So that's all I ask for, for from all of you. And if you can do that, then you're carrying um, our voice further. So thank you so very much for this opportunity. And uh, I'm so grateful that you've asked me to be with you today. Mm. Well, we thank hope you. that you'll be open to coming on again, Anne, in the near future. <laughs> I will. Thank um, you so much. Thank you, Anne. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to close in prayer, but I just want to let people know if anyone's watching this for the first time, um, this is a monthly panel. We do this every last Sunday of the month. Um, so, so stay tuned for another month, another one next yeah. month. And if you want to um, watch back some of the old conversations um, with Brooke Prentice and Gary Warete Deverell uh, or Nathan Tyson, um, you can contact um Loffer through the uh, Charles Sturt um, yeah, yeah. United Church Chaplaincy and you can find access to some of those. But mm. my, uh, my thanks again uh, to Dr. Anne Patel-Gray. Um, oh, Catalina. Can I just say quickly, um, remember NADOC is next week. Yes. yes. To those who are watching, yeah. Thank you. Um, so how about I, I, I close in prayer and I thank you all for joining thank us for this conversation. Thank you, Anne. See you again soon. <laughs> Lord, have mercy, yes, Lord. for we have heard how deep 
the sins in this land have been and how fresh the pain still is. Mm. We have heard how the church was complete and active in those sins, in the sanctification of colonisation, of frontier wars, of genocide, of stolen language and culture and children. We pray that the church now, today, and our Uniting Church specifically would be bold, bold in its willingness to look and hear the truth and to sit with it and to be changed by it and to turn and repent and to seek restitution and repair and to work for justice. We pray that we would hear Anne's call to be bold, to step out and say with full voice and full conviction that the ongoing racism and the ongoing exploitation of land and the ongoing dispossession of the first peoples of this land is wrong, so deeply wrong and needs to be changed. And the whole society needs to be rethought and reformulated from the ground up with the leadership and knowledge and wisdom and interests of the First Nations peoples. We pray that we would be bold in those steps to listen and learn, to repent and turn, and to follow in the work for justice. May your will be done, O Lord, for we know your will has not been in this land. And so we pray for the work of justice we pray for those who will be having these conversations and taking these steps through NADOC week. We pray for Anne in her continued work with World Vision and her team and all those she's in contact with. We pray for that work. Help us be bold, God. Help us to change this narrative. Amen. Amen.